We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. The Chase Down Podcast presents A City of Champions, a seven-part series chronicling the Cavs' 2016 NBA championship. With help from fans who cheered against us, reporters who covered it, and the players who watched it, we'll take you game by game through the most improbable 3-1 comeback in championship history. Be sure to subscribe to the Chase Down Podcast to relive the greatest series we've seen in our lifetimes. One dribble steps back, puts up a three, won't go, rebound tip taken by Spades, final second, it's over, it's over! Cleveland is a city of champions once again. The Cavaliers are NBA champions. The series begins Thursday, April 9th. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by BetOnline.ag. I'm Pete, joined as always by Darius. Today we're going to get to a couple of your mailbag questions in the first segment. And then in the second half, we're going to continue our breakdown of The Wire with what I consider to be the first really great episode of The Wire, episode four, Old Cases. Really excited about that. We may take a little more time on that because I, I I just love that episode. Um, but first, got a, got two or three really, really good questions from you guys. Thank you for that. We're going to start out with Kevin Furuta asks, what's the biggest difference between how Luke ran the Lakers and how Vogel is now? both from an X's and O's perspective and from dealing with players. So I'm going to let you dive more into the X's and O's and maybe even the dealing with players part, because one of the things that really stood out to me or that has stood out to me from Vogel is that there has been a certain level of consistency with him that has stood out to me in terms of his approach and in terms of sticking to the game plan. Um, one of the things that sort of frustrated me most with Luke Walton 
even though I was a supporter of his, was that he sort of jumped around a lot and and was willing was too often willing to sort of hedge off of what was the game plan based off of something that he might have seen and he would get away from something like an an example of it would be how he would sort of switch between like switch active like switch heavy defenses with certain lineups and and then go back to playing a more traditional drop style now some of that was personnel related mm-hmm. but i feel like having such differences within his defensive scheme in the long run was was detrimental to the overall growth of his roster and, and and finding something that they could lean on consistently over the course of of a full game and so that was one thing that that I feel like Vogel's been much better at than Walton was for that thing in in particular the uh, and I think this applies to the defensive end even more than the offensive end is I've always felt like he was trying to simulate the Warriors and his experience there and those teams often had two different bigs that would be drop coverage type bigs and then you'd have your small ball switchy type of lineup and I I thought that just stylistically they could get a little they could get a little too just like you said it, it, they would bounce around uh, one thing with Vogel is I think that his rotations are very consistent I would argue sometimes to the point of a little frustrating right when a guy is sure. outplaying somebody that that um made may need to sit on the bench a little more in that particular game but I think there's value over 82 in that type of consistency. And I think that within that idea of consistency, you also have, uh, you know, the same stylistic approach from one coverage to another. Even if we've got AD as a small ball five. Now, let's be fair to Luke here. He did not have an Anthony Davis. And those teams were actually solid defensively, right? Yeah. I think that offensively was more... I, I feel, especially in retrospect, that Luke was trying to copy the coaches that he looked up to and the coaches that he worked with rather than internalizing what made that successful and coming up with kind of basketball theories of his own. He was trying to kind of, he was like coaching cosplay type of thing. Right. Whereas I, one thing I've been very impressed by with Vogel, and I think this plays into the personality aspect as well is Vogel is very prepared and he's a lifetime basketball geek that hasn't had anything handed to him. Now, mind you, Luke made it to the NBA, right? He's he's also Luke Walton. And a lot of advantages come with being the son of an NBA Hall of Famer. Whereas I think Vogel had to build up to where he got on preparation. And I think especially with the type of people, and I think that he's earned the respect of very key figures within the organization LeBron, Anthony Davis, guys like yeah. that. Cause he's not going trying to be the guy like, all right, guys, everybody listen to me. That's not the type of coach that he is, nor is that the type of coach that we need. We need a guy who's deep in the tape and really understands how to game plan, is collaborative, and understands the amount of work that you can't fake to get into those level of details. And Vogel does that. Yeah, I think that that idea of being prepared is really based off of all of the things that people who have like covered and followed LeBron for for most of his career 
I think that aspect of of being prepared is really one of the few ways to earn his respect um, mm-hmm. as as a head coach. And it's not look. So LeBron is not going to be dictated to, but he wants someone who's going to be collaborative with him. But I also think that he wants someone who is going to coach him. But mm-hmm. LeBron can be, from what I understand of him and, and from watching him now for about a year and a half or so, I think that this is true, is that if you do not earn his respect from being prepared enough to be able to coach him, he is going to start to tune you out a little mm-hmm. bit and want to do his own thing more and more because he understands what it takes to be successful. And I'm not right. sure if Luke ever won him over completely in in that way. And I think Vogel did a very good job of doing that early and mm-hmm. and and building those and making those those inroads with him very early on. And, and I think that that's mattered a great deal. No, I think that's absolutely the case. And I think that um, from an X's and O's perspective, part of that preparation is understanding how to build an offense around LeBron. Uh, Vogel has not tried to reinvent the wheel with LeBron the way that remember all those one, four high sets that we had with Luke and, Luke Luke did had an inferior roster to what we have this year, but I I felt like he was trying to find a solution and he he didn't necessarily come up with one when when simply sticking to what LeBron has always done best, like move bodies out of the paint. It's 2020. Don't have four across the free throw line extended and have four bodies right in the paint, right? Like let's space the floor as best we can with again a different roster, but uh and create space out of those actions. One thing I like that Vogel has done is we were a very post-centric offense and we've found a way to be a very efficient post-centric offense, which I think, I think, I think we're going to have less variance in our offense come playoff time. Fingers crossed that there is one than a lot of teams are, are going to have, especially when you add that additional element of, if we do come back, this is going to be strange. The, the type of preparation that, we're going to that players going to have to have it just in coaches is totally different. I think that the nature, the simplistic nature of our offense, which it sounds like an insult, but it's not. I think that's actually really beneficial to this team in, in a way that a lot of other offenses are built on timing and built yeah. on, uh, you know, <clears throat> making sure that everybody's in sync in a way that we're not going to have to be. No, you have said this a bunch over the core course of the season that, the Lakers run almost like this old school 90s style offensive basketball, right? Like, hey, you ever hear of that great idea about giving the ball to your best player and then sort of spacing the floor for him and then letting him work and draw a second guy? Like, hey, that still works even in 2020, right? So so I I think the point that that you made is is a very strong one. All right, so our next question comes from Jay King who asks... Who's one star in the league today, realistically, that you would want to pair with LeBron and AD going down the road? I want to, so I want to hear your answer. We were talking about this offline, and I said I was very interested to hear the name that you have here because we have not talked about stuff like this in the past, right? We've been so engulfed with what this season had looked like and sort of the surprises and then some of our frustrations. But, you know, the team's at the top of the West, man. Like, they didn't 
in theory need mm -hmm. a third star. Right. So, um, so real. So I know the question said realistic. Yeah, realistic but, is kind of hard, right? But, like, <laughs> but 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 so let's maybe venture into the unrealistic here, and, and and who's like who's your ideal third guy? I would love to have Clay Thompson on this team. Ah, good one. That yes. dude is the best player in the league at running off of screens. Like the three-man game between Clay Thompson, because that's the thing that Danny Green doesn't provide, right? Is that ability to really just come off and it like he knows exactly how to set his guy up uh, and, and get himself open. The weaknesses in his game as a ball handler, you know, he obviously had the torn ACL and we'll see how that impacts him, but he never really did his work off of screens. And when I talk about his work off of screens, what has always been really remarkable to me is his ability to create separation at six foot seven, right? He's not hmm. some six, two dude flying around that is just outrunning everybody. His footwork is phenomenal and he can catch from any position and make exactly the right pivot to the, exactly the right spot and has that incredible quick release. Right. And so if you've got that with LeBron's passing and AD's ability to terrorize the front of the rim and pop out himself and just like, dude, yeah. that trio would destroy the league, man. How, how about you? First off, well, what do you think of what do you think of my clay? Uh, no, I think that that's a great. So that's right in the template of like those Miami Heat teams, right? Like that's like clay is the Ray Allen right, guy. Right. The thing that you didn't even say His about defense, him yes, is, yes, yes. is is the defense, yeah, right? Yeah. Which is what I. Like I instantly thought of the shooting, but my next thought was like, oh, like this is this is the T two version of Danny Green. Mm -hmm. Right? Like <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. So so I mean so I chose a similar player type, but a guy who has a little bit more of a diversified um offensive game. And my guy is Bradley Beal. Mm -hmm. I was thinking him too. You you know, um, so he's not the shooter that Clay is, and he's not the defender that Clay is, although Beal has not played in sort of a defense first environment sure. and, and play and I often like to bring high level players into an environment that sort of stresses those things a little bit more because I think it it sort of nurtures those aspects of their game to to sort of push them into developing and, and playing harder. How, how different there. of a player was Pau Gasol in 2008 versus 2010, right? Like we no, don't, that's a great we don't ever think about that type of development of like championship level development and guys going from an environment like Washington, right? That's part of the appeal of Clay too, right? Is that dude's a freaking champion, right? Like he was, remember him hopping around on that torn ACL in the hallway, right? Like, oh yeah, like, oh, it's just a flesh wound, right? I'm coming back. Like Clay's a killer on, on top of uh, all of his skills right and so yeah some somebody like bradley beal coming from an environment like washington i think it's easy to that said the other side of it can be like there are guys who really do best when they're kind of in anonymously dropping 25 a game in in a small market you know what i mean it can be hard to come to la especially as a third option oh well i was gonna say it doesn't even need to be like a small market or big market thing some some guys are just more su suited to always being like 
a number one or a number two on sort of like a middling team versus being a number three or a number four mm-hmm. on like a top team. Like one of the games that they were just showing on in one of those like replay things that they do on Twitter um, the other day was um, Indiana finals, right? 2000 finals against the Pacers game, game four. And who did I see running around out there? Oh, look, it's Glenn Rice. Right. Mm-hmm. right? And I was just like, oh, I remember the little short Glenn Rice era, mm-hmm. right? And he was a guy who had been a, like a star star, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like just he had done it with Charlotte. He had done it with the Heat. He was one of sort, sort of those, um, if not an all NBA love, level player, like a, like one of those guys who you penciled into the all-star line. Mm-hmm. He, he, he was just that caliber of guy. And then he now has to come in and play in a more regimented system with the Lakers and Phil Jackson. And it wasn't quite there. No, and there's fewer touches like, too, right? Like he's a third yeah. option, clearly. But to get back to Beal, one of the reasons why I would really want to pair him with LeBron and AD is because he has more of that ball handling capability to sort of be a lead ball handler type on second units. Like I think Clay would make this version of the Lakers, the style that they play now, damn near unbeatable. Like just because he's that caliber of player, I think Beal would allow them to sort of venture outside a little bit more of what they do now and build different types of lineups where the thing that we were sort of excited about when the Lakers signed Dion Waiters, remember when the Lakers signed Dion Waiters? <laughs> Feels like a hundred um, years ago. You know, Mark Keith Morris is on the team too. I thought about that the other yeah. day. <laughs> oh man. Ah, we need it back, so, man. So, but you know, like that, that idea of what Waiters was going to bring to, to the table is like, oh, he could be a secondary shot creator. Mm-hmm. And he's a guy who you could give the ball to like on the sec- second unit and not have to rely so much on, on a Rondo type to be um, a set organizer and someone who, who calls out plays for you. Like LeBron can go to the bench and you can run two man game with Bradley Beal and Anthony Davis. You can run pick and roll. You can put the ball in like sort of a caretaker point guard's hands and run Beal off of screens, run two man game off ball action between him and AD um, while also still really relying on a Beal type to, to be a primary on ball shot creator for you as well. And, and, And so that's the type of player who I think, could really fit well not only on like this iteration of the Lakers but on one like two or three yeah years. he's a better long-term fit than Clay for sure right like you can you can go some places with Beal and AD right and still have a bit of cap space to add a third guy or build a team out from from there um yeah Beal's ball handling ability he's shown that especially this year with John Wall out um last year and a half really um that yeah, he's got those aspects to his game. So yeah, that that's probably the better long term fit. But just for a short term, if Clay comes back healthy, which also that's a, another you know element of it. But yeah, six yeah. foot seven champion Clay. I've seen that dude just come through too many times in big games and big moments to where there's no doubt. But a uh, long term, Beal's a great choice. 
No, and reunite him with his dad. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Oh, God, can you imagine the the, those two yes. in L.A.? That'd be amazing. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to come back to, like I said at the top of the show, uh, what I think is the first truly great episode of The Wire. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on, but you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on. Or let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino and blackjack. All open 24 hours a day and all online, including their $750,000 poker series. If you're into props and entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the weather. Visit their website and join today and receive a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Be sure to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet online, your online wagering experts. All right, so episode four is called Old Cases, and uh, it was written by David Simon, the show's creator, and uh, it, it's when things start to start to coalesce a little bit. So let's kind of walk around uh, from from scene to scene. Uh, you know, we we start out with uh, Greg's and McNulty are at a hearing for Marvin Browning, and he's one of the uh, one of the Barksdale dealers, right? They just had that. Um, they tried to get the stash. They had, you know, little bust and buy and bust operation, right? And where they yeah, they tried to like they executed the raid, the raid right? right? Like that was right near the end of episode three. That's where McNulty says, you know, I ain't going, right, 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 uh-huh. and and then they go and they kick in some doors and they look for the stash and they basically end up with nothing. Mm-hmm. They make some arrests, but it's just like there's no stash. There's no heavy hitters around there. There's no nothing. And so this new episode opens and there they are in court and they've got old dudes sitting there and they're trying to rough them up a little bit with some charges. Right. So he's got this long rap sheet and they're planning on throwing five years at him, which is the maximum sentence, which like gets his attention. Right. When he hears the uh, when he hears the state say that they're going to be pursuing a five-year term. What the hell? And, you know, that's the leverage that Gregson McNulty have with the purpose of trying to get him to sell out some of the, they're trying to roll him up, right? Trying to, do you got anything on Stringer, on Avon, on, on Weebay, any of the higher dudes in the organization, they're trying to use those lower level guys to roll him up. And so once Marvin realizes this, he's like, okay, he's like, oh, you know, Kimo's like, Okay, what? Like, I'll take the years, which yeah. gives you an idea. And in, in that next scene, right, they talk about like, well, hey, they, you know, we visit the projects every once in a while, and they live there, and and it was just indicative of the weight that Avon Barksdale's name carries in in the neighborhood. So yeah, so so that that first scene, what does that kind of give us the idea of, uh, you know, where both cops are and the and the Barksdales? Well, I just think that the cops. To me, it signals that they're scrambling a little yes. bit. Like, yes. like they're making headway, but they're still trying to really get a real foothold on well, things. It's because right? of their it's because of their bosses, right? They don't want like a real legit investigation at this point. They say, "Hey, put a little drugs on the table, do this and that," and so they do this like BS job of trying to like that's not the job was not done and so they've got this you've got these two really good cops in mcnulty and greggs trying to but they're so hamstrung by the people above them that they can't really do much so they are scrambling yes and 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 they want to make a good case right and so they are turning to all the little tricks that they have 
which in this case is trying to roll someone lower level up to get a bigger fish in the fryer, right? And the flip side of that, though, is exactly what you said, is when he says, well, I'll take the years, and he says it in a way that's almost like condescending right. is like, to them. Right. Like, like <laughs> don't you know? Like, like, we're all here together. You should have known already. Mm-hmm. If, if you're coming at me with Avon's name and Stringer's name, you already know the heat those guys mm-hmm. can bring. Mm-hmm. And so did you really think I was going to turn on those dudes? And it was almost a light bulb moment for everyone there, mm-hmm. right? Like yes. old Marvin's like, I'll take the years and I'll be fine with those years. Mm-hmm. And, and Greg's and McNulty are just like, ah, yeah. I like almost like, yeah, I guess it is going to be this hard. Yeah. Well, it's right? what they expected, right? Like they, they, yes. and that again, they're hamstrung by their superiors. So they don't get anything out of that. Uh, and then, then they cut to, uh, Polk and Mahone, who are the two of the worthless cops, right? And uh, Mahone is in the hospital because Bodie knocked his ass out. By the way, there's going to be some cursing in the second half because there's an iconic scene at the end of this episode where we cannot use uh, cover it properly without using a four, some four little words. Um, so yeah, or one in particular. One in particular, so yes. Uh, so yeah, there. Mahone is psyched because he can take 66 and two thirds pension and go, you know, work at his brother-in-law's video store out in in the County, make his money. And he's trying to talk Polk into doing the same. Right now. I I don't want to get too far into this, but just this scene in particular, I'm just like these MFers, man, this is exactly like they're like their whole thing about like, Oh, we deserve this. We really deserve this. Like they haven't done their job in 10 years. And, but we all know people like that in, in, especially in like state institutions where it's like impossible to lose your job, that that's the point that people get to. And then they, they're the ones that feel so aggrieved, right. And that they're deserving of such riches. The level of entitlement yes. with those two oh. is just off the charts. Yeah. Right. And, and, and it's sort of hinted at in a previous episode when they ask about like who signs our OT, mm-hmm. right? That was the and, first question, right? Yeah, and and that's when they get told basically like do some casework that requires some OT, and then you'll get it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh man, like this is what we got to deal with in this outfit. Like, come on now, like where's basically CTC? You know, I'll like I'll give you whatever I want, and and but you're going to be paying me anyway, mm-hmm. right? So, like, let's cut the BS. Right. And, and so those two in the hospital, and and when they're just sitting there drinking, they're just sitting there drinking in bed, man. And then um, Daniels walks in, and they're just like, come on, have a taste uh, with us. Uh. And it, it, it's, it's just such a classic sort of, throwaway scene but what you realize when you go through the wire especially a second or a third third time there are no throwaway scenes, all the so right all the pieces matter right what, who's the guy yes. that, that wrote the book on it abrams. jonathan abrams right yeah yes. that's the name of the book that's about the wire and all that and this is something just that's very if you if you know me in my personal life i say that phrase all the time like all the details all the pieces matter and yes every every little scene is it's it's 
telling this broader overall story, right? And these are people that exist in real life. That's that's part of uh, what I enjoy about The Wire is having worked a bunch of odd jobs throughout my almost 40 years on this planet. Uh, just like, yeah, I know that guy, <laughs> you know, and just how how people emerge in certain systems and environments as, as a result of what happens around them, which brings us to in some ways, the other side of a what I see the entitlement scale as it, somebody who has to be really good at his job because he robs drug dealers for a living. And that's Omar, right? And so the first scene with them, they're on a stoop, and it's uh, Omar, Brandon, and Bailey, and they're you know talking about their their play that they just got where they hit the Barksdale stash. Um, Omar is kind of lamenting that uh, Brandon called out his name, but you also find out in that scene that Omar is gay. And not only is Omar gay, Omar is very openly, it's not a behind closed doors, hush hush type thing. He's got his arm around his boyfriend. He's, you know, running his hands through his hair and whatnot on the doorstep in front of everybody. And uh, th that's his, you know, and so they're talking about their, you know, what their next move is going to be. And, uh, you know, a, an addict comes over and, and asks like, hey, you know, I think it's Miss Shirley is, is her name. Uh and, and says, hey, my check is late. Can I have a fix? You know, and Omar gives it to her full well knowing that she's not going to pay him back. Oh, she's likely. never going right, to. Right. She's not going to pay. So this at all. So this I, I think this scene and or that scene in particular kind of frames Omar as this kind of Robin Hood character. So anyway, I, I, sure. I, I think there are a lot of dynamics in that scene. I was really curious to hear your thoughts on it. Well, it, it's it's all kinds of different I think that you that what Simon does there is he lays out the complexities of of the character and all the sides of this guy in like this one masterful scene, right? And so, in fact, like um, Omar's not lamenting that his name got called called out. He actually said, "I don't even care. They know my name." Right. Like my name reigns in these streets. And so they call out my name, psh, whatever. Right. Right, like that's just going to cast more fear for the next time. Right. Like Omar coming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we'll see that we'll later. learn yes. more about Omar coming <laughs> later. But but you you know, so he sort of say, so in that image, you see him as, oh, he is the ultimate sort of gangster type. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the no fear guy. Um, but he's also the compassionate person who's running his fingers through his boyfriend's hair mm -hmm. and he's gay. And so back then too, like understand what year was this? This was what, 2005 or six, something like that, right? Somewhere yeah. around there. Let me look to see when this was so, released, but yeah. So the connotations 2002. around 2002. 2002. Mm -hmm. So the connotations around like a gay man at that point, like, there were no gay men portrayed like like Omar Little. Nope. Right? Like who was going to be the on one side he's he's gay and there are all these stereotypes that come with that. And and that pops up in a scene later, mm -hmm. right? Coming when up. the Barksdales mm -hmm. are talking about Omar. Mm -hmm. Um but yet he's also the toughest dude who's robbing drug well, well drug dealers. And then you can view him sort of having this compassion for the addict who comes up and it's just like, because the other dude 
it's just like, oh, here she come on her bullshit again, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, like they already know when they see her walk walking up, carrying her baby almost like a prop right. to get sympathy, right? right? Like, oh, oh, Mr. Omar, my check is late. Right. And it's like, okay, okay, like, you can have it. And Omar can come off as sympath- as, as sort of compassionate there, but really, is he being compassionate? He is basically giving an addict another hit to ensure that when she wants it again, she's going to come back. Mm-hmm. And I can almost guarantee she'll have money one of these times, right? She'll be paid. She's going to have somebody to, to what, what I think to it is. What I think stuff like that is is. Uh, a degree of compassion, the more cynical end is loyalty, right? Like what is one hit Hmm. at the end of the day from a financial standpoint to a guy like Omar, right? But in a guy like Omar having the enemies that he has needs to have people looking out for him too. And people understanding that, Ah. you know, like when he's on his home turf, wherever that might be, uh, you know, he has the kid that's on his lookout, right? Like he, even a guy like Omar Little needs some loyalty and needs some people around him to protect him, right? Even if it's just to give him a 10-second heads up that some some shit yeah. is coming his way, right? No, that the heat is around the corner, exactly. for sure. Um, for sure. The thing about Omar, as I, as I said in a, uh, the last episode, he's my favorite TV character of all time. And part of it is because he very much has a well-developed code that he adheres to, he believes in, and it is the, it is the, what underlies his confidence, right? Like he's, he's gay. He ain't got any problem with anybody knowing it, right? He's, he's got no shame in anything that he does or outside opinions of who he is, because he has thought about every aspect of what, of who he is and what he does. And there are things that he will do and there are things that he won't do. So he can proceed with confidence in any situation, knowing exactly the person that he is. And that was a scene that, that first really illustrated that. Now you mentioned the scene soon thereafter of uh, you've got kind of a meeting of the high council of one of several basketball scenes in the wire. That's right. Uh, And so you've got, Avon Barksdale opens up the scene and he's talking about like, you know how white people, when they go like hunting and kill a deer and they like sprawl that shit out on the hood. Right. He's, he's like, I want it to be like that. And he's always talking about putting out a hit on, on not only Omar, but on Brandon and Bailey. And it starts out, he puts $2,000 on Omar and a thousand each on Bailey and Brandon. And then uh, I think it was, was it Stinkum that says this? Yeah, Stinkum, uh, who's one of the enforcers. It's it's Stinkum, Stringer, Weebay, also one of the enforcers, and Avon in, in this meeting. And uh, he says, hey, you know, like, one of my boys was down, locked up with him at Jessup, and he had a, a whole bunch of guys. He had a stable of boys down there. And and they used some colorful language to describe that. But the the takeaway from that was that you could see that Avon and Stringer's like manhood felt attacked, right? Like not yep. only did this guy get us because they pride themselves. And so one of the themes of this episode, we might have to, Darius, we might have to cover this episode over two different episodes of, of this. Cause I, I love this episode so much, but uh, one of the themes of this are competent people being attacked on their competence. There's a, and, and how they react to that. There's a scene with Kima later that we'll get to that plays into this theme as well with no hard Anthony and all of that. But Avon 
and Stringer pride themselves on running a tight ship. And they pride themselves on also being these like manly men of the projects, right? These kingpins and whatnot. Not only did they get got, they got got by a gay man. And that and and once Avon finds out that Omar is gay, he doubles the price yes. out on the hit. Right. Like it's a, an additional level of disrespect to him. So what, what were your takeaways from from that scene? No, just so watching it in hindsight, too. Right. Just in terms of where we are at and, and where society yeah, is going. Such a different said, world. Yeah. Like colorful lang- lang- language. Right. Like like they're using slurs <laughs> against Omar. Mm-hmm. Right. To, to to sort of describe his sexual or orientation They're there are words that we won't repeat here, but but you know they are strong, mm-hmm. and it's this sense of like we're already better than him, right? And we'll be able to handle him. So there is there is already a, a certain amount of confidence, right? So even when that scene ends, Weebay walks out and he is like, "We on it," and and Avon thinks it's going to be handled. And it's going to be handled soon. And like, we won't give away how things go. But over the course of this series, you will learn that it is quite hard to get Omar Little in in any way, shape, or form. He is quite the elusive character. And 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 so it's it's one of the first times that you start to see them put their sort of bravado up front, right? Mm-hmm. To this point, Avon has not portrayed himself as someone who is super wanting to be out there mm-hmm. like that, right? But the way this scene started is just how you describe is like, we want our names to sort of ring out in this situation. And we want everyone to remember that they cannot mess with us. Whereas like contrast that to that scene in the club where he's talking to D'Angelo that we talked about a couple of podcasts ago, where he says to him, like, I never been, been, been in jail and I ain't trying to go. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's this balancing act that is, that is super interesting to me within a character like, like Avon, where he is, definitely taking pride in being sort of this kingpin in the streets, mm-hmm. right? But then also understands that if you take that too far, mm-hmm. that you can end up behind bars, right? But in this instance, I feel like his his want for revenge is sort of oh is sort of outweighing all that. And and it's an interesting turn this early in the series to sort of see how oh there are some things you just don't do right right it's it's a matter of reputation right and there's there's a spectrum of that of right if you're too showy and you're you're too uh you know trying to prove you know show everybody that you're a kingpin in these outward and flashy ways yeah you're going to expose yourself in ways that make you vulnerable and avon does not do that and that's why he hasn't been to jail is that he keeps a low profile there's also reputation in a in a way that really matters right is that so much of the like they just got hit by someone on the outside 
And yeah. that's going to spread word of that is going to spread. And that is going to attract other people looking like, Hey, is there, are these guys weak? They, can we get them somewhere else? They do not want to be looked at as vulnerable. Right. Right. And it's the same as that scene that we did not talk about from, a, from it was either an episode ago or two episodes ago when, when bubbles and his boy try to run that game by giving fake cash. Mm-hmm. Right. And, this is sort of um and 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 then Bodie like kicks dude's ass mm-hmm. and it and it's that same sort of show of force, mm-hmm. right? Like you like you try to get over on us and we're gonna come back ten times as hard right. on you. To send a to message to the next a, guy. To send a message. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And so speaking of bubbles, we have been remiss in not bringing him up until now. Bubbles is a great character. The show is full of them. He is an addict, but he is uh, turned informant by that incident that, that you talked about, right? Where his his guy, uh, I'm sorry, whose name escapes me right now. But uh, but yeah, so his guy got beaten up in, in that little game they were trying to run and got put in the hospital. And so Bubbles is trying to help the cops out to, you know, kind of these. He, he does not like how the Barksdale organization runs the streets right and and that they're overly violent that they're they do some unnecessary things so he's looking to help them out so he's riding in the car with uh with kima right and kima is trying to find out more about like who's this omar dude right like this guy just just like stole from the barksdales what's his story so she's and she's new she's only been on this beat for a few months and there's uh so she's asking bubbles bubbles has been on the streets for years the streets of west baltimore for years and years and just kind of knows everything that's going down so he's like yeah omar's fierce like he don't need a last name uh it just kind of given her omar's story and she asks well who's his family he's like oh you remember no hard anthony and and she's like no i don't know who that is and bubbles is like offended right They're like you don't know who no hard anthony is like i'm ashamed to be your snitch and uh and this really bothers Kima, right? And this is something you could see on her face. And then the, right. the next scene, they pull up. Uh, she's Bubbles is going from her car to McNulty's, and uh, you know they ro- drive up on driver's side and roll. And at the end, she's like, "Hey, do you you know who No Hard Anthony is?" And McNulty, being cut from similar cloth as Kima, but being on the beat for way longer than her. Uh, is like oh yeah, and rattles off his address, what he's uh, been busted on. Now he pulled, he, like he pulled the stats, like he was someone who had collected criminal cards, like, ba- the right. way that like you might collect <laughs> right. basketball cards, he's right? Twenty five like, a game, right? Like eight <laughs> and seven, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like oh, he went to Villanova, right? <laughs> right? Like <laughs> so, she he knows, and and so Bubbles is in the background cracking up, like, and, and so it was that that was a, another area where where like like Avon getting hit on his stash. That's something he prides himself both on his reputation, but also his competence of being good at his job. Kima experiences that too, right? Where it's there's there's no substitution for experience in being immersed in in yeah. a world that uh and, and, and that very much uh illustrated that. Now we've seen this chemistry being built with Kima and Greg's uh, I'm sorry, with, with Kima and McNulty, and but another guy starts to emerge with Lester Freeman, 
right? And uh, so, yeah, so so Freeman has kind of been doing his own thing for a bit, uh, but has figured out how to clone the pagers. And there's a great scene where he's outside of the Barksdale organization and uh, outside of the terrace. And he thinks that he's gotten D'Angelo Barksdale's pager. He's gone out there to confirm it. He texts him. D'Angelo goes to the payphone, calls his number. He hangs up there in, uh, Lester Freeman is the guy I always I always razz you that you are Lester Freeman, right? This is always a fun game with the wires. Who's you know who's your character and whatnot? Um, what what? Which is not a dig. Lester is fantastic. Uh, yes, Lester's a great character. Lester there. is a he great is character. Absolutely. What uh? What have you at this up to this point taken from Lester Freeman? So we talked about him a little bit last episode, right? About sort of like he he seemed like he was a mope as like McNulty would would call him. And then he's and then he has that conversation with Bunk about him. And Bunk's just like, you know, like, oh, I thought you said they sent you a bunch of humps. And he's just like, well, they did. Like, mm-hmm. that's Freeman. And then Bunk's just like, no, man, like he's natural he's police. Real police. Mm-hmm. Right? Um and he's like, well what happened? And he said, oh well you well you'll have to ask Freeman. And so fast forward to this episode, and Freeman is again starting to show his chops as a police officer, right? And so you just explained what, like, what happened. He and Lester explains it himself a little bit later, but how he had pulled a pager number, and then he had then worked it all out. And Freeman continues to sort of show that he is going to be an integral part Mm -hmm. of where things go within this series, right? And so at first he's the guy who's just, you know, carving up and and and, and painting doll like dollhouse furniture. Dollhouse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dollhouse furniture. Like, oh, here's an armoire. Right. <laughs> right. Um and then he's the guy who pulls the first photo of of Avon. And then you see him sort of starting doing police work at the end of the raid. And now he's sort of executing that more and more in this episode that comes to the penultimate scene where they're talking about exactly what they need to do in order to ramp this case up. So that right? that's a great scene, right? And that's one where I think really speaks to how much we're affected by our work environments, especially, you know, the longer that we're at a job. Uh, we come to find out in one of the last scenes of the episode that Freeman is essentially McNulty's ghost of Christmas future is that Freeman had been doing police work in homicide. He had been asked to keep a fence and a fence is somebody who sells stolen merchandise to keep a fence out of this case that he was making because he was the son of the newspaper editor, right? He was politically connected in some way, like make this case without him. And he probably could have, but he files charges on this guy makes him testify and then gets sent to the pawn shop unit for years and years because that's where he didn't want to be because he didn't play the game, right? This is McNulty's future is that he is pissing off powerful people that's right. In the name of doing good police work and not caring about that. And 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 Freeman already knows. He's like, they're going to ask you where you want to go. Keep your mouth shut. My favorite line is when McNulty tells Freeman, he says, shit, Lester, you're back from the dead. <laughs> and, it, and it's just a 
fantastic line, right? Because it's almost like, like, like almost like when in White Man Can't Jump, where they figure out that Billy can actually play, mm-hmm. right? Like that's what this has been like for Lester, right? Like w- when in White Man Can't Jump, when they're like, give him the jump, and uh-huh. and there he is, like on the side, um, Billy, Hull. and then he ends up being like the hustler, right? right? And that's and that's who Lester has sort of shown himself to be mm-hmm. within the context of this unit. He is now showing that he is real police. Well, it's also right? like it's him from his perspective taking joy in his work for the first time in a long time. If he's in a long if time. he's natural is it, that's when uh McNulty is like intrigued. So, I'm sorry, let's backtrack a quick a bit. So, they have that scene where they're talking about the different steps they have to hit to get uh to justify a wire, right? To have exhaustion uh and how cloning the pagers he's proven that they that's the only way that they can yeah. get access into the Barksdale organization and all that but that that scene when you zoom out a little bit is to me about when you work with other competent people you can really feed off of them right yeah. and it, it's it's something there's something in the collaborative nature of doing that when like that scene people different people are doing really good police work and different people who have like either decided all of this is bullshit or have been like even Daniels's tune changes right because Daniels is part politician part cop like actual well, good cop he's like doing good police work and organizing all of this and yeah it's it's all of these good cops kind of coming together well he had that conversation too with Burrell right where right. he was just like um you know, well, McNulty says that this case needs a wire, and then, and even Burrell sort of softens for a, for just a second, and he said, "Well, what do you think?" Almost like like he's almost open to the idea, mm-hmm. seemingly, right, right. And that's when Dan Daniel says, "Well, you know, it needs something." And so, fast forward back back to that scene, and this is where Lester sort of shows his chops again, right, because. There's this great sort of understanding, especially between Kima and McNulty, that they need to sort of flip Daniel mm-hmm. to get him on board and that they're going to need to convince him. And they plan this and they plan this out. McNulty tells Kima, like, OK, I need you to present this mm-hmm. because he trusts you. Mm-hmm. Like, if I go in there right. and say it right, then... He's not going to listen to me, but if it comes from you, it's going to be fine. And so Kima slow plays it perfectly, mm-hmm. and then McNulty sort of jumps in right at the right time, and and Daniel starts to feel like, huh, okay, you guys are telling me something mm-hmm. here. So, and then Daniel's asks, well, do we even have a number to clone? Who has a pager number? Do you got one? And then they're looking at each other, dumbfounded. You know, McNulty and Greggs, it's it, it's like getting to the final boss in, in in like a video game and suddenly he's got some weapon that you didn't know that he had. And it's uh, right. like, oh, oh, shit. Like, I don't have an answer for, uh, sure. for, for this one. And, and then in comes Lester. He's like, ah, uh, yeah, I got this number. Right. Found it on the, the stash, stash house wall. wall. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, does well, does it work? Yeah, I checked it out earlier today. Like Lester's done all his homework, uh-huh. and so when you talk about everything sort of coalescing, which was a great word at the beginning of of us talk talking about this 
this episode. To me, this is the scene where it all sort of comes together. Like this group can actually maybe pull this thing off, mm -hmm. right? Like we're super early into the series, but this is that sort of momentum building scene that shows you that they're about to get this thing rolling and it can kick off in a big way here. And, and it gets you excited, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. For, for what can come next be because all of these folks are seemingly moving in the same direction now, especially with Daniels on board. Very much so. But the thing that the police are lacking is leverage, which is what that first scene with Marvin Browning illustrated is, is that like, okay, great, but they don't have somebody that can really tell the stories of the organization. Um, and, and so Freeman has latched on to D'Angelo Barksdale's pager. Uh, the other bit of leverage that they're getting over D'Angelo is illustrated and they, they uh, foretell it earlier in the episode. So Bodie has gone to juvie and uh, in out in County has the easiest like escape scene, right? And he's very obviously surrounded by hostile players, right? All these kids from DC and he's a Baltimore kid and they're looking at him like they're about to tear him up. So he gets the hell out of Dodge while Herc and Carver are telling themselves young man stories of delusions of grandeur on how they're going to break this case wide open by making Bodhi cry or whatever, right? So Bodhi makes it, Bodhi steals a car, makes it back to the terrace, to the low rises where Wallace and Poot and D'Angelo are sitting there. He's all, you know, Bodhi's been all fucked up by the ass kicking he got from the cops and whatnot. But Bodhi's coming back to talking like Bodhi's kind of the Barksdale analog to Herc and Carver, right? This like young man who thinks he's like hot shit, right? And, and that he's uh, got it all figured out when he doesn't. And so he's talking a little big and he's he's said a couple of things and done a couple of things at this point that indicates that he thinks D'Angelo is soft. And so D'Angelo was trying to set him straight, telling him a story about this this woman that he that he murdered. Right. And uh, he just paints this scene of kind of he, he says, I got a little bit of creep to me and you're and my uncle knows that. Right. So when he needed a job done and it was quiet in in the shadows, he would go to D'Angelo. And this is one of those jobs. So she had been a girlfriend of Avon's and she found out that she wasn't the only girlfriend of Avon's and got a little upset about that. Started threatening she was going to talk about some things about the bark sales, right? And, and put them in hot water. So Avon sends D'Angelo out there to, to, to kill her. And he uh, describes how he does it, right? From it, it being late at night, him tapping on the window loud enough so she can hear it and get up out of bed. And he shoots her in her in her in the kitchen of her apartment. So later in the episode, Bunk and McNulty go to look up this case, which they didn't want at all. And Landsman had plopped on their desk because he just wants some freaking clearances, right? Like everybody's got their own motivations. And there's a great scene we probably won't even get to with Landsman and Rawls where he's tr trying to get Rawls successfully to like back up off the case. And Landsman is very flowery and poetic with his words. Anyway, yeah, sorry. I, I can go on about this episode forever. Anyway, uh, so Bunk and McNulty are retracing the six-month-old crime scene that was really shoddily done by Keeley, I think it was. Uh, and 
so there wasn't much done to it. And this is the fuck scene, right? Where they go a good four or five minutes where all they say is fucking different versions of fuck, fuck, motherfucker. You you know, like all all that. All they do is, all they do is change their tone. It's like watching a Magic Johnson passing high, highlight reel. And all (laughs) you see is all of these different passes. And it's the same dude throwing the same type of pass, but he throws it 500 different ways. And every single time it's a highlight. Right. Yeah. It's right. And and, and that's what this scene is. But with the word fuck, because, they go in and right from the beginning, they look at, they're looking at the documentation that's in front of them, which is the case file, which is like as thin as, right. you know, it's like three pieces of paper and like a, a handful of pictures. And then they're looking at the scene and they're just like almost thinking to themselves, or at least the way that they say it, just by using the word fuck, mind you, mm-hmm. like, this motherfucker didn't do anything mm-hmm. with this. And like, what the fuck kind of job did, are are we supposed to do with this information? Mm-hmm. But there, there you go. And this is where offline you and I talk a lot. And I often use the word like subject matter experts, mm-hmm. right? And what this scene does is show you the viewer, like, this is how good these guys are at their job Mm -hmm. that's that's what this scene is great at doing and so they are late they are retracing the steps of the crime scene their their only bit of dialogue is using the f word back and forth to each other over and over again with heavy sighs in the middle and long drawn Mm -hmm. out Right. It's well. It's also the it illustrates their chemistry too. Right. In that when you know somebody really well, it's just a look. It's just a little bit of inflection in your voice. There's as soon as uh, McNulty figures out, and so what what they're doing as they're doing this is they piece together exactly what happened. And uh, you know when he figures out like, oh, he was standing on the porch because like at first he's like, how did she get shot? in the collar just below the collarbone but the exit wound was out her back her lower back and like the at first he thought was she kneeling, kneeling right and this dude's above him like, like execution and he's got out a tape measure right, right. and like and and he's trying to figure out what the heights are right and then they're starting to look at more pictures and they start to see small little things in each one of these these pictures that starts to like these are the breadcrumbs right, right that that are leading them to the final answer but right no but absolutely so yeah so mcnulty is figuring out like oh it was from outside because bunk originally realizes that it's from outside uh mcnulty goes out there taps on the window just like d'angelo said that he did and as soon as he realizes oh it's from there then bunk takes the tape measure and like oh we're gonna go back six feet right and see if we can find the slug and this is a low traffic area the apartment hasn't been rented for six months there's some there's some things in the scene they're like yeah that's convenient but hey i'll you know i'll roll with you on that but yeah it's it's the one of the showier scenes i think in in uh but it definitely an, an iconic scene and and the point of it in terms of what is taken away going forward is that they now have some decent evidence in case that they can work back onto who they suspect to be D'Angelo Barksdale. So uh, everything again, starts to coalesce in this episode 
it's an all-time great uh, episode of of The Wire, and things really get moving from here on out. So thank you for uh, for joining us on this one. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of days to do episode five. But until then, you've been listening to Laker Film Room Podcast. We will catch you guys next time. Ainge has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tip to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic, got it. Magic fires. It's good. The Lakers win the game. The Lakers win the game. Gamble in and out. The ball is tipped, and it's saved. Three seconds left. Here's Van Exel. This is for the win. He got it. Kobe Bryant, 48 points, 16 rebounds. Amazing performance by Kobe. With his eighth block shot that ties an NBA Finals record. A lot of Laker fans well, sticking around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance right, in, Boston. in Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I know Red Arbach is uh, rolling over. Kobe. Are you kidding me? Unreal! Are you kidding me? How strong was that? A triple and a fall away in the corner with a shot knocked down. Lakers by three. Ryan spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. Pretty pass. And it's back to a three-point game. And the critical part was Pietras jogging back. Didn't bounce the floor. It's a two-for-one situation. Kobe Bryant picked up by Powell. There's the move. Two, one. Listen! Brian, yes, and that was a little tough to Alvin Gentry. That insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.